The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's program. Well, you heard in the news that that, uh, Simon Coveney was greeted by a demonstration. Uh, The minister is also saying he may have to consult the Attorney General on the issue of uh, bin charges. I'm joined by the Labour Councillor for Dublin Bay South, Dermot Lacey. Councillor Lacey, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. How are you? Now, once upon a time, Councillor, when you were a boy, the uh, the, this, the council used to collect the waste and the, the van came up the road and collected it and then we were told it was going to be privatised and the left said this would be a, repres- uh, uh, a recipe for price gouging. Then we were told there was going to be a water utility and the left have told us that this is a recipe for price gouging. Uh, do you think the last couple of weeks have proved the left right? Well, George, I'm on the left. I'm a social democrat. I believe that there's places where the state should intervene and there's places where the state shouldn't intervene. And I think what you mean is the far left or the ultra left or the opportunistic left or any of those terms that you want to use. But there's certainly not a left in terms of making life better for ordinary people. The AA people before profit, socialist party at all, are the people who are responsible for the service being privatized. Because I, I was reading a statement from them today saying that they, they want the service to be put back into the uh, local councils. I always wanted it to be within the local councils, and that's why I, along with a majority of councils across the country, voted for a reasonable uh, waste collection charge. The far left opposed such a charge. Uh, consistently, they bullied councillors, they picketed councillors, they picketed council meetings, and I see the ratters again in Tala today. Uh, and that led to a situation where city management, after the power was transferred to the council management, uh, opted for the private privatisation. I'm both privatisation. I think it should be public service, but I also think people should pay for it. But why why did the why are the far left to blame for it? Because they were saying um it should be free. You you don't think it should be free. There's nothing in life, George, that is free and you know, eventually everything has to be paid for. And I'm in favour of reasonable taxation on on income and then appropriate charging for appropriate services. And I don't believe everything should have a direct charge. But waste that uh, involves a, an encouragement, waste charge that involves encouragement to people to recycle and to reduce is a good thing. And similarly, with, with, with water, in relation to the current mess, there's no doubt that the private waste companies have used the interim period when there wasn't any government to try and extract the maximum amount that they can uh, from the public. And I think that the minister should intervene uh, to ensure that there is a fairer charging system. That was the possibility laid down by Alan Kelly before he left office, and I think it's up to Simon Coveney to deliver now. But, you know, we can't forever defer decision-making, and I heard tonight that the Minister is talking about deferring it for a year. Uh, you know, we really need governments that are able to make decisions. I, I made decisions when I was Lord Mayor. I paid a certain political price for us, but I believe then it was the right thing to do. I believe now it was the right thing to do. And uh, 
I think we need politicians but, uh, to stand yeah, up I'm, I'm talking to City Councillor Dermot Lacey. But, but Councillor Lacey, um, it, what we now see is, it appears at any rate, three, 200% or 300% appears to have no relevance whatsoever uh, to the kind of costs involved. And uh, otherwise, if they, if they need a 300% or 200% increase, they've been losing money hand over fist. They don't need that increase, George, and the minister should step in, and that that is allowable under the measures that Alan Kelly provided for. I am not defending the exorbitant increases that the waste collection companies have imposed on the public. Those those increases are wrong. Those increases are unfair. Those increases don't allow for any possibility where somebody might have incontinent issues or more children in the family. And that's why, George, I always argue that this should be a local authority service. But it is the far left who led the people down this cul-de-sac that led to the services being privatised. And, you know, Joe Higgins and Richard Boyd Barrett and Sinn Féin and all of these other people, Ruth Coppinger, should now accept responsibility for a mess that they created in the first place. You might reiterate why you think they created the mess. They created a mess, George, because they they bullied councillors and they bullied local government into a situation whereby ordinary, reasonable charges were deemed to be uh, unacceptable. That led to a situation where when management were given the power to decide on waste charge issues, charges, that the management decided the trouble of collecting waste was not worth it and they allowed the services to be privatised. And the only victory of the anti-bin tax brigade was to ensure that A, the power would be taken from councillors, and B, that when that happened, the service would be privatised. Remember, when councillors had a power in relation to this issue, there were waivers for people on social welfare. There were waivers for older people. There were provisions made for people who had special needs. All of that went when the service went to the private sector and those people that I've outlined, the ultra-left, the far-left, the extreme-left, whatever term you want to use, the opportunistic left is what I'd call them, uh, they are the people who are responsible for this chaos and this okay. mess. But you don't seriously suggest that Simon Coveney today is saying uh, it's, it might be off for a year is an answer to the problem. I mean, 200% or 300% doesn't make a lot of difference whether it's July 2016 or July 2017. No, it doesn't. The minister, and I, 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 I'm accepting the good faith of the minister, by the way. I, I, I think, you know, he's only a short-term in office. He... He should be allowed to have some time to sort of make decisions in a sort of a responsible manner. But, I mean, the bottom line is we need directions to be made to the waste companies that they cannot overcharge. There has to be a maximum charge set in relation to these. I mean, my understanding is that one of the reasons why a minimum charge was set across the three sort of a, a range of bins, the black, black brown, and, and the green bin, was so that there couldn't be, if you want, hidden charges on one hiding charges for, for another. So the idea of a minimum charge to cover the actual cost is a, is a good thing. But what we need to accompany that now is a maximum charge given the extortionist rates that yeah, private but waste you, you've, Yeah, but you have you're absolved your Labour Party co- colleague Alan Kelly uh, of, of all blame in this issue. I mean, he brought in uh, a charge on the green band, which is a recycled no, bin. There was always 
always a charge for the green bin. The, re- the point is that many of the waste collection companies buried the charge for the green bin recycling within the overall cost that you're charging, whether it be the standing charge or the cost of the black bin charge. What Alan Kelly tried to do was to set the real cost of those three individual uh, bin, bin collections so that there could not be a hidden cost applied to one or the other so that the waste companies had to but pay. He de- but he has already, well, therefore, why has he apologised that? Well, what I haven't heard Alan apologising, so maybe he has, but what, what I understand is that Alan has called for the measures that he provided for when he announced the minimum charges to be acted upon by the minister and to now set a maximum charge. And that's what I want to see, George. I have been in trouble with the Labour Party over the years. I've been prepared to criticise uh, the Labour Party when it deserved to be criticised and obviously defended it sometimes over the last five years. But the reality is that waste collection charges are normal in most modern e- economies. They are, they are reasonable uh, charges to have, but the charges that the waste collection companies have imposed are not reasonable, and it's up to the minister to address that. And in fairness, I believe he will, and I hope he will. But there's no way that it's going back um, to local council. And, I mean, you take somebody like me who has been vocal in, 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 in saying, pay your, your bin charges. Then I, I pay them. Then I pay, I now get a bill which is two or three hundred percent from what it was before. Then I pay my water charge. Another bunch of politicians say, no refunds for, for, we're going to scrap water charges, but there'll be no refunds for the people who paid. Well, it's course, very that, difficult. In fairness, that's not what the Labour Party are saying. The Labour Party I didn't right. say it was no, no, Labour Party. Okay, but I, I, if you expect me to defend Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael, well, you know, have somebody No, else. no, but I, what I'm saying is that it is very difficult for citizens who say, look... Uh, we accept that there is that that there's nothing for free, and and it is reasonable now I think for someone like me to say, well, hold on here, if these guys privatise water, we'll be in the same manure because that's what'll happen to water, and this is what the far left have been consistently saying that if we allow this to happen. There will be price gouging. Well, and no, now all that no, appears to happen no, George, is that's the, true. The, the, far, the, far, the far left are, are wrong. First of all, Irish Water was a fully owned state company. And I was interested to hear uh, Deputy Louise O'Reilly in the door last week uh, calling on the minister, uh, asking the minister why the minister wasn't given more powers to Irish Water to help deal, clean up the beaches in North County Dublin. Because clearly even that... Uh, Sinn Féin TD recognised that we need a national approach to that sort of uh, problem. The, the Labour Party, uh, being of all as far as I know, and obviously all, all the ultra-left parties, all favour uh, making Irish Water uh, a fully publicly owned uh, company protected by the Constitution. I'm quite happy to see that happen. I called about 10 years ago, George, for a national forum on local government financing that would involve all of the various political parties and the social partners to sit down and agree on how we were going to fund uh, public services at local authority level. I still think that's what we need to do because, you know, people are entitled to feel a little bit aggrieved that, you know, the local property tax is charged one day, the water charge another day, the bin charge another day, and there is a need to be for certainty in relation to all of this. 
And I accept that need for certainty. But it's all part of the dysfunctional, non-joined-up system of local government that we have in this country. And you know, George, and I know that even if we came to an agreement, even if there was a national agreement on a system of how we would fund all of these things, the far left would still find a reason to oppose it because we have a very unique political culture in Ireland. We have the only left in the world that is against reasonable taxation, uh, occupied the far left benches and all there. And it's a unique political philosophy, not shared by socialists or social democrats in any other country in the world. Uh, the, the the question of reasonable taxation. I mean, one man's reasonable taxation is another man's unreasonable taxation. Absolutely, George. But I mean, I just when I knew it was coming on today, I just googled one thing today. I, I I googled how much local tax would I pay if I lived in England, and one local uh, uh, county. I actually can't find the county to be honest with you very quickly. I just googled it, and if if, if uh, a house uh, that uh, an average house in Dublin is about three hundred thousand. Uh, and if I lived in a £300,000 house in Dublin, in, if it was in England, I would be paying £2,990 sterling council tax a year. A similar house in Dublin would, cause, would, would, would raise about €450 Euro a year. Now, people say that we don't get public services in the same degree as they do in other countries. But that's all part of the you know, income and expenditure are two sides of the one coin. If we're going to have proper public services, we have to have proper payment. Okay. If we're going to have proper payment, we have to have fair proper payment. And in order to do that, we have to have a national buy-in. And that's why, you know, really, I, I say again, we need an agreement on how we fund local services. I'll play my part in this. I've been arguing this battle for years. Uh, and I believe if we can get agreement, right. the, the extremes on both the right and the left can be defeated. But there is a, a key point here. The, the famous Boston Tea Party, when they chucked the tea off the ship, they talked about taxation and representation. The problem since the Jack Lynch government took away rates on property is that essentially councils became toothless and and what you what increasingly we're seeing all the time and you mentioned it yourself today in terms of waste disposal we have now handed all the decisions over to unelected officials rather than elected ones and we have managers or whatever in councils who are making these decisions and i saw you on television in relation to the homeless crisis representing a council that once upon a time was able to build houses now it can no longer build houses. Now we can't collect waste. It probably can't monitor water. So increasingly the question ought to be asked, well maybe we just should have Owen Keegan sitting in his uh, ivory uh, cloud and run the whole show and you guys go off into a happy retirement. Well, I don't blame Owen Keegan for doing the job that councillors were unwilling to do or afraid to do, which is the case in some past. I think councillors do have some powers. I think councillors hide behind the lack of power sometimes. But if you sat, for example, on Dublin City Development Plan uh, about two weeks ago where we spent 22 hours agreeing a plan uh, for the next five years, I think you'll see that we do have a fair amount of influence. Not as, not as much as I would like to see, not as much as I believe we should have. I did a calculation recently that since the abolition of rates by the Jack Lynch government in 1977, Dublin City Council has lost about €8 billion Euro on that decision. Now, if you extract that to, 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 to Cork and other, other places around the country, the sums of money lost by local government have been absolutely enormous over the last 30 years. But 
it doesn't negate the fact, in my view, that local government is the best way to deliver local services. And, you know, in my case, I will continue to fight for local government because I believe that's in Dublin's interest and I believe it's in Ireland's interest that we allow councillors to do the job that we want to do and we force TDs to do the job that they should be doing rather than a lot of the time doing our job. We're we're able to do it, we want to do it, but they have the power to, to give or take from us. And so far in recent years, all they've done is take and we need a little bit of give. All right, thank you so much for joining me. That is Councillor Dermot Lacey. Uh, we pay far more than in England if you add in USC. I think it's a confusion. USC is is income tax, Texter. Um, that uh, we're talking here about property tax and what you pay for the services that are given to you in that property. What's the purpose of income tax? We now pay extra for everything, says Darren and Galway. I think you're confused. Darren, uh, income tax is a totally different kind of tax. If you're saying are there going to be two taxes or three taxes, then yes, the answer is there will be. So that the people who don't use water uh, don't have to pay for it. The people who don't have waste don't have to pay for it. And the people who earn a lot of money pay an increasing amount of income tax. And the people who pay uh, earn low amounts of money uh, don't pay. And I, I, I have to say, uh, in every other country in the world that seem to get on with this, it doesn't bring governments down, doesn't have uh, riots in the streets. Uh, the word riot in inverted commas. Uh, what, what the people realise is that if they want services, they have to pay for them. And, uh, so, my thanks to all of you for uh, uh, looking at that issue. And, of course, Dermot Lacey of Dublin City Council. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie We're going to talk now about something that, of course, remains part of Irish life every day of the week. It is the issue of mental health, but more importantly, how it affects people who sometimes uh, don't get fixed, don't get help, and therefore the cost can very often be huge to them and, of course, their friends and family. So I'm joined in the studio by John Paul Faulkner. John Paul, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. Why why did you contact me? Um... I just want to highlight some issues. Um, we had an experience with our family member where the health care he, ref- he received was inadequate, really, you know. And um, what we're really trying to do is to give people a voice, people who've had similar experiences, so that things can change for the better, you know. That's really my main aim. Well, that's very generous of you. Um, now, who's with us here as well? Uh, Carol, his mum's with us. Now, when we say him, who who is him now? This is Trevor. Right. Uh, he was my close cousin. I lived next door to him okay. all my life, so he was kind of like a little brother to me, really, you know. And and, and Trevor died by suicide. Trevor died by suicide. Your your cousin, uh, Trevor. Uh, Trevor's mum is here. Carol, welcome to the programme. This can't be easy for you, so um, I'll try and make it as easy as I can. 
there can be few things more traumatic than losing a child. So I commiserate with you on Thank that. You. And um, how long ago was this? September 2014. All right. Now, um, one of the things, this is something that's been an interest of mine for a long time, the whole issue of, of, of health and mental health and attempted or successful suicides. Um, very often, parents, when they talk about it afterwards, they say, we had no idea our son or daughter was in trouble or anything. In this particular case, though, you knew there were problems, really, did you? Definitely, yes. For the nine weeks that he was in hospital, actually, he went in because um, we found a note, or his friend found a note, and then there was nothing done for him in the hospital. He just had time to, to think, and the thing he was thinking about was the afterlife and suicide. What does nothing done with them? Because by and large, you find it difficult when you go into hospital. Nobody wants to do anything. By and large, you find they want to do too much, has been my experience. So how do you mean nothing? He was diagnosed, first of all, uh, an on-call psychiatrist said he thought it could be schizophrenia, which was on a Saturday. And then on the Monday, he was diagnosed with deep depression, which we went along with. And he was medicated for that. He was supposed to go on um, a depression program, which was... Two and a half weeks. Two and a half, yeah, but I don't know how long he waited for us. About three weeks. There was no difference. He was just getting worse and worse and worse. I kept phoning up the whole time, and I had been promised different tests were going to be done, and in the end, nothing was done. I told him he was dyslexic and... I wanted an ADD test on him. Okay, so you, then uh, you talked about nine weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, was he released from the hospital then? Yes. And then what happened? When he was released, he did a little course, um, and it was just constantly talking about the afterlife and suicide. He and was obsessed with it in the end. All right. Surely um, a month. Oh, I jump all. Um, you're his cousin, next door neighbour, and um, his lifetime friend, obviously. Now, um, you had written to me um, about this because you obviously um, are very upset about the treatment he mm. received. So, uh, we we've got from uh, his mum. Uh, how the family felt about it and the awful trauma there must be for a mother of a child to to lose a child. What did you see wrong with the system then? Well, when Trevor came in, he was very stressed out, you know, he was in a kind of a panic. But the longer he stayed, um, he, he started to... At this stage, he wasn't talking about dying or suicide or anything. You mean when he went into When he went in, he was just stressed out and he was just like, you know, um, there's nothing in here, he was saying, you know. But a lot of us have been stressed out. Yeah, and I could, like, you know, relate. I could absolutely relate. But then, after a while, and from mid-July onwards, it became constant. He became obsessed with the afterlife and obsessed with wanting to die. And... From mid-July onwards, every time I went in to visit, and I visited every day because I'm up here in Dublin, he'd be either on his uh, iPad or in front of the reception desk at the computers looking up afterlife articles 
and suicide articles on the internet. This was noted like, on a number of occasions in the medical report too. It was also said to the, his head consultant and to the other uh, medical health care professionals that didn't seem to take it seriously. I mean, the response was, um, I think his head consultant said, Trevor, you have to stop doing that. How old is Trevor at this point? He was 28. He died after the day after his 29th birthday. Before this uh, trauma, Carol, you're his mother, um, before this trauma, this sort of nine, ten-week period he's in the hospital and so on, had he exhibited uh, forms of stress? I know you thought he was dyslexic, but had he um, shown any signs like of mental health difficulties, like in terms of holding down a job or studying or, or whatever? He was at Trinity and he his degree and then his master's um, he didn't have a job. But he was clearly a smart guy. Yeah. Mm. Very. He couldn't concentrate on things for long. He would start yes. things and they'd never be finished. But but you were his mother nobody closer than a mother to a child. Were you worried before it, the major trauma came along? I no. Mean, you weren't? No. I mean, okay, he couldn't get a job, but he couldn't concentrate. That's not the end of the world. There's tons of us couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I spent half my life, we couldn't get a job. Um, so, but, but the trauma then came pretty suddenly. Very suddenly. All right, now, John Paul, you're his cousin, and you've talked mm. about this hospital. We're not going to name the hospital. Yeah. Mm. But is this like a general hospital, or is it a, a specifically a psychiatric hospital? Specifically, I'm... What you're telling me, and obviously I take it at face value, I mean, what you're mm. telling me, he's on his iPad looking at the afterlife, he's up at mm. the computers by reception, it's noted in his medical records and so on. Like, you and I aren't experts, mm. but I think if it were presented to you and I and it wasn't your first cousin and it wasn't somebody that I'm talking about on mm. the radio, I think we'd be concerned, No. Obviously, I mean. So, is this into, your is this your angst really? Two uh, years later, what? It's not an angst, it's but the, you're here, though. I mean, and and I'm I respect to. Sorry, I'm here to just try and change the system. Like, yes. I mean, the family weren't listened to, and uh, like also, I see he had a two and a half week program. He had like um, cooking lessons, like you know. I don't. It was anyway. He cooking had, as in kitchen. Yeah. Like, okay. I, for whatever reason, I don't okay. know why. Like, it was completely All right. inappropriate. He could cook fine. Um, he had he saw uh, his psychologist twice a week and his psychiatrist once a week or twice. I don't know, but like he was there's just this massive amount of time where he had nothing to do, you know. So he was just on the internet, and I mean that was the problem. There was no like I, I had to. You know, in desperation, I wrote a, a timetable for him to the, you know, 9 a.m., wake up, have a shower, you know, half 10, uh, go for breakfast, or like half nine, go for breakfast, 10 o'clock, read, read a newspaper, you know, watch a documentary, like listen to music, you know. Like I had to, like, try and give him some structure because there was no structure the only thing to his is, day. Though, to be fair, when, mm-hmm. my, and I, I, like when most of us, uh, 
go to hospital. There's an awful lot of time you don't do anything. Mm. You know, now normally we're not uh, in in a psychiatric difficulty. Mm. Like normally, you know, I've got a new knee replacement or something. So now I'm staring at the wall mm. for hours or mm. watching television. I accept that this is a, 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 a different situation. And I have experience. Like my father was in a psychiatric mm. hospital. My aunt was in a psychiatric mm. hospital. Um, you know, yeah. so I'm not talking without some knowledge here. Yeah. Uh, and some empathy, yeah. but I'm trying to get. I, I, you didn't like my use of the word angst, but it doesn't matter what word I use. You, you're not happy about it, and I can understand why you're not happy about it. But, but why do you think? I don't get this yet, and right. I'm hoping to get it. Okay. Why do you think there wasn't an awareness amongst professionals mm. that this was somebody? Who was a suicide risk? Like if he were in mm. a, in in prison, it, it, and something happens, they put you on a suicide watch, and there's somebody mm. looking through a peephole mm. every hour or something. Mm. Did he just fall through a crack in the system? Or this, what? I mean, this is something I've thought about for a long time, and I don't understand it. But what I will say is, he had several diagnoses from different nurses, and um, you know, he was first his his locum. Uh, the locum psychiatrist in the hospital. In the hospital on the first day, said he had schizophrenia. Then his head consultant on Monday said it was deep depression. Um, you know, once his psychiatrist made that diagnosis, he, he seemed very reluctant to go back on his initial pro- prognosis. But do you I not think? Do you not think your cousin uh, Trevor was suffering from deep depression? No, no, definitely. And what not. do you think he was suffering for? As a matter of interest. I think it was a complicated thing. I mean, you know, obviously I'm not a professional. I mean, the other healthcare professionals in, like, outside his team within the hospital said he didn't have depression, you know. Now, who are people outside the team? Who are they? Nurses. His actual psychologist said that it sounds like ADD, but he's being treated for depression, so we can't do anything about it because the head consultant has diagnosed him with All depression. Right. With me in the studio is John Paul Faulkner, cousin of Trevor Murta, his cousin who died by suicide, who had spent, uh, prior to that, nine weeks in psychiatric care. Also in the studio is Trevor's mum, uh, Carol Murta. And we're, we're, we're doing what John Paul co- called, when he wrote to me, documentary of a suicide. Um, I mean, ADD, of which I have no expertise, mm. ADD isn't something that tends to lead to suicide. There's a lot of people who have ADD, but it tends not. Suicide, one wouldn't think, is the logical sequence that happens next. What do you think about ADD and, sadly, your son's death? I I honestly think that Trevor wasn't depressed, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Well, you're his mum. You'd know. Um, Exactly, but nobody would listen to that. There lies the problem. I can understand your difficulty because telling me the story, both of you, in the most sincere of ways um, and, and clearly the most truthful of ways it comes across to me, you're searching for an answer um, that nobody has ever given you, really. Um, how soon after, John Paul, after leaving hospital, uh, did Trevor die by suicide? One month. Now, what happened in that month? He's at home, I guess, yeah. is he? 
You, you're his next door neighbour. So. not getting better. Just the same as always. Still looking at the afterlife on the iPad or whatever. He had been booked into a psychiatrist, you know, a clinical psychologist. And the day before, he actually did it, you know. Booked him by the hospital or he was booked in by his GP or what? Carol, you're his mum. Who booked um, him in? The psychologist I was on to a lot in the hospital. And I had told her about all the different the different little bits when he was a child because I was never asked what he was like as a child. Never. And when I gave the different... Sorry, I, I do want to stress this, if you don't mind. Y- y- your son goes into hospital uh, uh, for whatever reason. It doesn't matter whether it's ADD, whether it's deep depression or whatever it is. He has a problem. And you, the person who knows him best, to bore him for nine months brought him up, wasn't... Are you telling me that he? you weren't asked... No. What was it? What, did he have problems as a child? Was he difficult at school? Did he do his homework? I mean, the first question I asked you was, like, what did he do at Trinity? You know, mm. did he go to university? Did he get a job? Because they seen the instinctive questions. I have to say I find it very hard to believe. Well, that that doesn't say I don't believe yeah. you. I find it very hard to believe. I kept telling them... Years when he was a child, I had to go through loads of things to get him um, diagnosed with dyslexia. So he was dyslexic and he had to do his leaving by recorder. And I kept saying, because different people had told me, there are, even my own GP, there are loads of different branches that come from ADD, like OCD. Okay. Loads sure. of different things. I wasn't listened to. I'm going to close, John Paul, but what do you want to say in closing? What What's the key thing you want to get across to the thousands of people who listen? Just a couple of things. I just want to point out that his medical files say there were no change, no change, no change in his condition. Yet he was uh, he was he was released. He was discharged. You know, uh, no change over nine weeks, and his treatment didn't change. And you know, I, I don't think that's acceptable healthcare treatment. And I'd finally like to say that um, we've set up a Facebook page for people to share their, their stories, you know, um, because we think that there's a lot of silence around this topic because, personally speaking, this has been very difficult for us to tell the story because it's very painful to go through these things, you know. What's and the Facebook page? Yeah, the Facebook page is www.facebook.com forward slash mental health reform now and we just want mental health reform now yeah on facebook yeah okay and we just want people to anonymously share their stories um and do you think it will help you and and trevor's mum carol no with me we want people to have have a voice you know there's a great there's a great phrase which i hate but I, it's the only question that I that I can ask in the way I ask it. How do you and Trevor's mum, how are you going to get closure on this? Because you're still deeply upset. You're still emotional. Well, this has been a difficult interview for you. So how are you going to close this off? But what do you I need? I mean, of course, with a suicide, you never get closure. I mean, that's I'm just, sure. just, I'm just sure. the part. That's just life, you know. That's fine. Yeah. But, but, there, but there are good ones and bad ways of trying to come to terms with it. We're not, lo- lo- I mean, I'm not, we're not looking for closure as such for ourselves. All we want to do is to help other people at this stage. 
you know, we want people to tell their stories. And I think hopefully the more stories we get, you know, the more people will pay attention and listen and realise that there is something fundamentally wrong within the system. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. It took a lot of courage to come here. Uh, Trevor Morta, sadly, no longer with us because of suicide. His mother, Carol Morta, and uh, closest friend, I guess, and cousin, John Paul Faulkner, who has documented a suicide. 53106, the number for your text messages. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by MEP for Midlands Northwest, uh, Mairead McGuinness, who also is Vice President in the European Parliament. Mairead McGuinness, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon. How are you, George? This is a very sad day, uh, obviously, because today uh, British parliamentarians, particularly parliamentarians generally, are remembering Joe Cox. But reading Joan Burton's article at the weekend, there now is a suggestion that abuse is now commonplace amongst politicians. Is that true? I suppose everybody has had their own experience, so it's hard to generalise. Um, the experience that I had recently was uh, very much, uh, not so much online um, issues, but on my road, there was a painted uh, sign which wasn't particularly nice, and it's happened a few times, and I suppose it happened last Thursday evening, you know, after that dreadful event. So I suppose we're all a bit heightened about these kinds of issues, but I've talked to other people in politics Cross parties, and I suppose there is that general sense that we now have an added layer of communication, which is really wonderful, you know, because it's a two-way flow in terms of social media. But in some cases, it can allow people to say and express themselves in ways that they mightn't quite do if they met you, because you'd know them and, and you'd put a name to it. Yes, um, but uh, but reading uh, the former tarnished as article, John Burton, um, there was a, a sense that this is about female politicians. Yeah, I was very interested in that because I hadn't, uh, if you like, focused on whether women get more of it than men. And again, I was discussing it just before taking your call that uh, I think women are particularly sensitive to uh, comments that are made. I think we're all sensitive to it. Nobody likes it. I'm sure you get negative comments all the time and you can bat them off. But some of them might just eventually begin to impact, as I said, they hit you in the gut on occasion. Certainly what Joan was saying was troubling if it is that there is a certain uh, targeting or a way where women are particularly focused on in terms of online abuse, and she seems to have very good evidence to back up I have to say I disagree that it is females only, and I disagree mm. also, of course, crucially, that this might be something that politicians experience. Like, yeah. I, I, like in, just to take this program, I mean, just in the last couple of days, I've been called a rich, fat, pig, um, you know, I got yeah. a letter suggesting that it would have been better if I, if my mother had had an abortion uh, oh, to God. save yeah. last year to yeah. save the world from the arrival of Hook. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, some pe- the thing is, some people are better able to cope. But the thing is, I put this to you, Mairead McGuinness, um, that because there is an acceptance of it now, and I have to say an acceptance by the online companies who are making so much money out of it, that it then creates abuses okay. And I think there is a connection 
between online abuse and the tragedy in Yorkshire. Now, not everybody who abuses you online is going to cause you physical damage, but some people will. We've yeah, we've you, lowered the bar. Well, I think we've we lowered have. the bar. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, George, and I made that just before you made your very strong point there, that it's not just politicians, and I dare say, and you've um, quoted very tragically some of the comments that you've received. I think there is now an acceptance that it's okay to say things, and we're trying to, I always think it's very interesting with children, we're trying to educate them about online behaviour and, and, you know, not to be upset about things, and yet in the adult sphere, uh, this is going on at a, a level which I think is unacceptable because it has lowered the bar. And yet I know that I'll get comments after I speak to you saying, well, people are angry and that's why it's happening and you have to address the anger. And, and maybe that is true, that some people are angry. But I think that there's a difference between people being angry with politicians and criticizing you or criticizing me as an individual and actually using very base and coarse language or expressing, in your case, that you weren't, uh, didn't, you weren't born at all or indeed that you might exit the, the planet because it's not very far removed from what happened last Thursday. And I have to say, I found um, the news, when the news broke about Joe Cox's murder and she was out with her assistant, as I do all the time and we all do it all the time, it was a very chilling moment and it, it, it hasn't left my head because she was a human being doing her job. She had been abused, we understand now, uh, online. She had given a warning or had you know reported this and somebody went so far as to, to take her out and to leave her family without her, her children without her mum. Uh, the House of Commons, in my view, bereft of what would have been a, a wonderful politician. Um, and, and the tragedy is how long will she be remembered? And we're all very upset and traumatised. And I think it, the United Kingdom will be a very, I think it's very difficult for them this week because they're dealing with the aftermath of this desperate grief for the nation. They're going into a very uh, divisive vote on Thursday. And I think afterwards there's going to be an awful lot of need for reflection and mending uh, in UK society. And it touches us as well because everybody, you know, is affected when something as bad as this happens. But everybody's also affected if um, comments are made online, if your children see it. And, and of course they see it. Or if somebody um, thinks it's But okay, the whole thing is so. Yeah, Marid McGinnis, the whole thing is that what, uh, and it's where you started really, once upon a time, somebody came up to you in the street and they vented anger or whatever they vented, but they vented in front of you. Or when you canvassed at election time, they vented. What What is now an opportunity is for people to say the most vile and hateful things under a cloak of anonymity. And what it then creates, and I'm absolutely certain of it, in the case of politicians who have a much more public life, I have to say, because they do clinics and, and all sorts of things, um, it, it lowers uh, the, the esteem in which politicians are held. Although, again, interestingly, uh, in top of that, the politicians themselves are, are not blameless because the Ken Corlett today is suggesting the politicians in the doll are actually like teenagers. So the, the, all standards, with the dropping of all standards, it's not it, whatever about, and I think... I, I think something like Joe Cox, tragedy that it is, is something we hopefully we won't and I don't think we will see for a very long time to come. But what we see is the intrusion uh, on people that is absolutely awful. 
Well, uh, yeah, I couldn't disagree, although I think politics has always been a fairly rough blood sport um, in the history of Ireland uh, as well. I mean, politics was rough and uh, perhaps, you know, men, you know, engaged in it more than women. And now there's there's a lot of women coming into politics. You use the word uh, politicians no longer held in esteem. I can't remember when that was, to be honest, because... If you see some of the comments, I certainly think that um, uh, there's very little, you know, very few politicians who are held in esteem, which is a shame for the occupation that, that I've chosen to be in, but that's just how it is. But I absolutely agree with you that I think amongst ourselves and when we're debating, and if you listen to some of the debates in Dole Aaron, they're fairly poisoned and poisonous. And maybe we need to look at that as well, because that does breed uh, an air of, well, if you if, if it can be said in the all air and it can be as, as heated or on radio, these things happen and there's deep exchanges, then it's, it's, it's fair game everywhere. And sometimes when you're asked onto programs, people say, go on, don't, no, let's fly, you don't have to hold back and whatever. There is almost an encouragement to get in there and lash out and lash at it. I had an experience last week on one program and I got called the most awful names afterwards. I mean, they were just awful. And I, I try not to look at it because you're hoping that it's one of a few. And it's just wrong to call any, anybody that name. You wouldn't allow it, somebody to walk up on the street uh, to say it to you. Or if you did, you'd certainly turn and, and, and try and not listen to it. So I don't know whether the standards are lowered or that it's now more acceptable. But I do think the companies, the online companies who are controlling our lives to a lot, a large extent, because they're rewarding you if you post on Facebook and uh, pe- penalising you if you don't, and taking all sorts of, as they call it, algorithms. I think to control what's on and what's off and what's what's good and what's not. And therefore, I think that they have to start looking at this as well. well we have, the yeah, other well, thing, we George, I, I, yeah, I think we've also, and I'm doing this myself. I think I have to learn how to uh, deal with it, both mentally and physically. I think we have to arm ourselves with the bit of strength, uh, build that invisible barrier that allows you continue doing the job, not to be impacted in a way that could affect you, um, uh, and in a bad way. So I think we also need to learn the skills, as I'm sure broadcasters, I know some broadcasters are not on Twitter anymore because we're getting such dogs abuse. So I think sometimes we have to also take a little bit of a protective measure ourselves and, and try and deal with it. I mean, some of the things that I've dealt with, and I haven't had too much, and I hope it remains that online um, abuse, and, and long may that continue. But the ones I've dealt with more close at home are painted on the road, which is fairly standard stuff, uh, you know, and it's, it's probably more visible in the locality. And you do try and distance yourself from it a little. But I have to bring myself back and say, well, actually, somebody went out and did that, and they did it because they're either, they think I'm or think very little of me, which is fine, but they've decided to write it on the road as well and use vulgar language, which All is right. not fine. All right. Okay. Thank you for joining me. Marie McGuinness, MEP Midlands Northwest, and of course, Vice President of the European Parliament.